We now turn to reflection on the reading today, which is the Acts text. The Acts text that we'll read in a few moments picks up within weeks after the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are about to read a scene, and it is a familiar scene, a scene we've probably watched play out in our TV shows and movies. It is a courtroom drama scene unfolding with high tension and life or death stakes. This is the story of the disciples and how they have yet again been hauled before the Sanhedrin, the council of priests and scholars in Jerusalem. Yet again, the disciples must defend why they keep telling the story of Jesus of Nazareth. Yet again, the council wants to know why these disciples shouldn't be executed as traitors, just as Jesus was. This is a familiar story, and we might imagine how it ends. Maybe the disciples will be able to reason their way out of the situation. Maybe the crowds will rise up and push back against the authorities defending the disciples. Maybe the disciples will be thrown into prison after all and only a last-minute appearance by an angel will save the day. But none of these things are what is about to happen. The story unfolds in a much more simple and ultimately surprising way. Let us listen to the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 5. When the police had brought the disciples... They had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. And then he said to the council, fellow Israelites, consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400, joined him, but he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up at the time of the census and got people to follow him, but he also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. And so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, You will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. They were convinced by him. And when they had called in the the apostles, they had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
As the disciples left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What happens? What happens at our high-stakes courtroom drama where the air crackles with tension? Something simple, almost boring happens. Gamaliel steps up. Gamaliel is a highly respected member of the council, and actually Gamaliel is also a real historic figure, a person who plays an important role in Jewish history for his work in interpreting the law. He was the grandson of Hillel the Elder, who is remembered as one of the most important and influential Jewish leaders. Gamaliel is also a Pharisee, a class of Jewish leaders whom Jesus often criticized. Still, this renowned and respected Pharisee steps up and saves Peter and the disciples in a very simple way. He doesn't brandish a sword and break them loose. He doesn't fall to his knees and become baptized. Instead, he simply defends their case. He intelligently points out that history is littered with saviors who rose up, were struck down, and whose followers all scattered and disappeared. Gamaliel makes the case that the council should withhold judgment and watch where God takes the story. He convinces the council to let the apostles go, and here, for just a moment, Gamaliel becomes part of the Christian story. He steps onto the stage just long enough to play his part. He joins the story, helps save some Jewish Jesus followers, and then steps back from our scripture, however, having forever shaped our early church history. By using his gifts in the moment and even his privileged place on the council, Gamaliel becomes part of God's greater story, unfolding in the midst of ordinary humans. He could have remained silent. He could have simply stayed with the council's judgments. Instead, he decides to listen rather than ignore. He decides to wait rather than condemn. He decides it is more important to trust God than to get rid of the people with whom he disagreed. He believes that God's story is bigger than our fears and our perceptions he decides to let the story play out. And so the disciples are released. And of course, as we can expect, Peter and the disciples cannot shut up even now. They find they must tell what they have seen. They must tell how their lives are being transformed. They are aching to tell the story of what happened with their leader, Jesus, who shared their meals and told them parables and taught them about themselves and about God in ways that they had never expected. They have to tell about Jesus who died the most hu humiliating of deaths and yet who lives again in the most unexpected and nearly unbelievable of ways. In the face of torture and defeat and even deaths, the disciple will disciples will continue to declare over and over and over again that the story is not over. The story of Christ is not over, despite what we might perceive, despite what we might expect. The story is not over.
Easter asks us to believe in a miracle. And in some ways, I think we are happy to do so on Easter. We like the idea of a miracle and a savior. We like believing and being entertained by marvelous feats of power and strength. After all, our culture keeps going to superhero and fantasy movies all the time. We work hard to build up fantastic images of heroes because we want to see someone who will save us all. We like this idea. We like being entertained by this idea. We want to believe in it, even if it is only for a few hours as we read a book or sit in the dark eating our popcorn. No, I don't believe that the hardest part of Easter is believing in a miracle. We are ready to believe in that idea for a little while. I think the hardest part of Easter is believing that the miracle is still ongoing, that it is still relevant, that it still shapes our lives. The hardest part of Easter is believing that something is still happening, even now, something that our ordinary and boring lives are being caught up in. Somehow we are being woven into a story that is bigger than ourselves, bigger than our own individual strengths and weaknesses, and this can be hard to believe. As Alec preached last week, Easter changes everything. And perhaps the hardest part of Easter is believing that this is still true the Sunday after Easter and beyond. As we go forward with our lives, the hard part is believing that the story is still not over. When the disciples left Jesus in the tomb, the story was still not over. When they caught a glimpse of the risen Christ and fell to their knees, the story was still not over. When they faced a scary, unknown future, the story was still not over. When we leave church each week, the story is still not over. When we confront our own mistakes and our own brokenness, the story is still not over. When we achieve our greatest accomplishment, the capstone on our resume, the partnership, the success of our children, the finish of a full marathon, still the story is not over. And when we face the bitterness of frustration and hopelessness and grief, the story is still not over. It is still unfolding, and we have a role to play. Indeed, we can choose to fight against it. We can resist and deem ourselves too busy or too weak or too broken to be useful to God. But God is still going to use us in some way to continue the story. When we hear this story in Acts, when we hear these scriptures, we must ask ourselves, where will we be? Where would we be if we were in this scene? Will we be the one willing to listen? Or we, will we be the one who would rather just get rid of those with whom we disagree? Will we be the ones who want to destroy the beginnings of something new because it scares us? Or will we look and listen for how God might be at work, even in the midst of intimidating change? Will we fight against this almost unbelievable story of love and joy and grace? Or will we join it and let ourselves become amazed by what the Spirit is doing with even us? 
Whether we resist it or not, whether we hide from it or not, whether we believe it or not, the Holy Spirit is still at work, weaving us over and over again into a story that is still unfolding. Indeed, if we remember the recent passion narrative, we remember that Peter himself denied Jesus. He pretended that he didn't know Jesus when Jesus was being beaten and bloodied. And now Peter is an apostle. The story didn't end with his denial. Gamaliel is a member of the council which is responsible for Christ's death, but still he steps forward and makes a case to spare the disciples. The story didn't end with the Sanhedrin and Rome's sentence. When we look through the Bible and throughout human history, we can see that alongside the pain and the horror and the evil, the shouting and militantism and hypocrisy, there are also quietly unfolding stories of love in the face of hate, of fidelity in the face of fear, of hope in the midst of grief, of reconciliation in the midst of pain. There are so many unseen, unfolding stories that still send out almost unbelievable ripples, ripples throughout our lives that affect everything, that change everything, whether we admit it or not. Aman Ali is an American Muslim writer and activist. Last September, on September 11th, he shared this story on social media. Fourteen years ago, I almost beat the snot out of a kid in my high school. It was the last class of the school day, and everyone was glued to the TV in the room, trying to wrap their head around what kind of psychopath nut job could fly planes into the World Trade Center and murder all those people. At that point, it was clear it was a terrorist act, and talks about the U.S. bombing countries in retaliation were already happening. The teacher walked out of the classroom for a second to make some copies of a homework assignment, and when she did, a kid in my class stood up and said, man, I hope we bomb Afghanistan back to the Middle Ages where they belong. I remember every word and every moment of what happens next. Aman Ali writes, I turned around and looked at him and said, why? They didn't do anything. Yeah, let's go after who did this, but why do you want to bomb thousands of people with nothing to do with it? The kid looked at me in disgust and said, are you seriously defending them? As he pointed to the footage on the TV of the planes hitting the building. I said, of course not. I'm just saying, what good does bombing all those innocent people do? And then he went, I bet it was your father flying that plane. And as if some kind of Pavlovian reflex, I grabbed him by his shirt and came inches away from punching him in his face so hard, I probably would have altered the structure of his face. The only thing that stopped me in milliseconds before doing it was the look he gave me. He had a smug smile on his face, as if he was telling me, yep, I knew it. I froze when I saw that smile. I knew I had lost this argument because I essentially reinforced everything he believed that I was trying so hard to passionately counter. I let go of his shirt and pushed him away from me. 
he continued to stare at me with that smile telling me again and again, yep, I knew it. Thankfully, the teacher wasn't in the room when that happened. Otherwise, I probably would have gotten suspended. But the fact that nothing happened to me physically didn't take away the pain and regret I still have from that teenage moment. To this day, I randomly have nightmares about this incident, thinking about his smile telling me, yep, I knew it, again and again and again. What if I was the only exposure to Muslims he ever had? What if that's the opinion he carries about Muslims for the rest of his life? What if he goes around at dinner parties and tells others, those Muslims, man, I had a class with a Muslim once, and the dude tried to punch me for no reason at all. And in unison, everyone at the party would go, yep, we knew it. I woke up this morning, realizing what the date was, and uttered, oh no, here we go, to myself. And I pulled out my phone as usual to see what I missed while I was asleep. And then I noticed a Facebook message. It was from the kid that I tried to punch 14 years ago. I haven't spoken to him ever since that moment. Why the heck was he messaging me now? In his message, he told me how difficult it is to think about that day years ago, but it's because he can't forget all the hurtful things he said to me, and he profusely apologized. I was like, what? And I gave him my phone number, and I asked him to call me, and we talked. And I asked him what he's been up to since high school. He said he spent two U.S. Army tours deployed to Afghanistan. And there he got to interact with hundreds and hundreds of Muslim people that were nothing but warm to him. Night after night, he said he'd be invited to the poorest of poor people's houses for food, laying out the table with some and eating some of the best things he had ever tasted. The endless supply of love and hospitality and goodwill he got from the people there were a constant reminder of that hateful moment as an ignorant teen when he wanted to bomb the country mercilessly. And it was a reminder of the hurtful things he had said about my dad. I deserve to be punched, he said. Sometimes I really wish you did. Ali concludes, that's when I realized I'm really glad I didn't, because if I had, we would never have been able to have this conversation 14 years later. We are part of each other's stories in a way that we cannot always imagine. By God's grace, the story keeps going. Even in a moment of nasty bullying, and even in a moment of horrific terror, the story is not over. We haven't yet reached the end. The Holy Spirit is still moving in our lives. The story is not over. Aman Ali and his classmates shaped each other in ways they didn't expect. They were part of each other's stories in surprising ways. Gamaliel, the Jewish scholar, stepped forward and became part of the story of the early Christian church. We, too, are being asked in some way to step forward in faith, to join a story that is bigger than ourselves. We, too, are being asked to trust that something, somehow, in some way, is happening, that the Holy Spirit is at work, bringing us into a tale that is a vast, unfurling tapestry of faith, 
a tapestry of faith which connects us to strangers in the pew and neighbors in the street, as well as connects us back for millennia to Gamaliel and Peter and Mary and countless disciples in between. So friends, here is good news. The story is not over. The story is still unfolding. This Easter story is still going. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, you show us and you tell us the marvelous story of your transforming love and your unbounded grace. Teach us how to join in your story with our whole lives, today, tomorrow, and in the days and weeks to come. Amen.